Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season two of HBO Succession is back, and the Ringer's Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion are here to give you the latest in Roy family drama. Every Sunday night, they'll be breaking down what we just saw on our new show called Number One Boys, a Succession After Show. You can tune in live on the Ringer's Twitter every Sunday night, right after the episode ends. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Yes. Thank you so much, everybody. Really appreciate it. Really interesting show today. I get to speak to my old pal, Aisha Sasei. I've known Aisha for a few years now. And uh, she is one of the most interesting, I don't know if journalist is quite the word, but she's a journalist. She used to be a journalist for CNN International. But she has a book called Beneath the Tamarind Tree about uh, the lost schoolgirls of Boko Haram. And it's really, this is a fascinating book. You guys should really um, go get it. It's a fascinating story. And we'll talk about this in some of her um, <laughs> adventures, not quite the word. It's a real interesting conversation, so I'm happy to, to talk to her. A lot of stuff going on in the world, of course. But you know what, guys? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a little break from all the dark and down and all that stuff. And I'm going to invite back to Black in the Air, my daughter, Lauren, who is here for the summer. Hey, Lauren. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Black on the Air. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. And um, Lauren, last time uh, we had some fun talking about one of your major interests, um, which is language. Yeah. And I thought, um, let's continue. Since you had an interesting year last year, Lauren studied abroad. Lauren, by the way, so the guys that um, didn't hear the last one. My daughter is <laughs> so funny because I'm a dad. <laughs> but one of the things that I find fascinating about Lauren is she has loved languages since she was a very young girl. She yeah. wanted to like study it when she was like five years old. I don't even know if she remembers yeah. that. I started French when I was really little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so she's always been fascinated with language, but she's also she's musical. Both of my children are musical. And there's something I think about language and music. They're cousins, sure. you know. That, Absolutely. And I think that's kind of fueled her interest. But you had an interesting years. She studied abroad. You, you were in China for half the year, mm-hmm. in France for another half. Yeah. And you were immersing yourself in those cultures and languages, right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a wild year. Yeah. <laughs> Two very different semesters. And even the programs themselves were very different. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad I did it. And such different languages, too. Yeah. And because yeah. my major is Chinese and French comparative literature. Right. And whenever I tell that to people, they're like, whoa, those are so different. <laughs> know, but I'm yeah. like, look, would you really want to do Spanish and Italian comparative yeah. literature? Because they're so similar. It's almost more confusing, uh-huh. at, at least in my opinion. Everyone's different. But for me, it helps being able to compartmentalize the two Because languages. they're so separate? Yeah. Are there any kind of overlaps in the types of languages? Or are they so completely different that it, it just— uh, and that's what makes it interesting. I mean, there every language has some similarities with mm-hmm. other languages, and and I haven't thought too much about the similarities between Chinese and French. But like for my thesis, I want to translate Tang Dynasty poetry into French. I can't. My brain just explodes <laughs> when you say stuff like that. I know. And so, but but also part of that is the question: Can it be done? Should it be done? Uh-huh. In what way should or could it be done? You know, like playing with form. Mm-hmm. Do you want to foreignize it by making it not make sense in French, or do you mm-hmm. want to 
make it with the intention of being more comfortable for a French reader. You know, like there, there's oh, so many things to take into account. How do you account keep the, an authenticity of the piece? Yeah. But and still do you want give... to stay true to the right. original? Mm-hmm. How much, in what way, staying true to the original words or the original vibe, yeah. imagery? You know, like there's there's so much at play. So I'm excited to get my hands so on it. So one of the things I love talking to Lauren about, I mean, we talk about a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> but is that whole area of translation? It's so yeah. fascinating. Like for me, I thought translating was, what does it mean? This is what it means. Mm-hmm. That's the translation. But translation is more interesting than that, right? It's definitely, I, I'd say a spe- Translating yeah. one language to another language. Exactly, yes. yeah. In my intro to complex class at school, we were talking about how on the spectrum of translation, there's instruction manuals uh-huh. at one end where it's all about meaning because you okay. have to convey how to do whatever the thing is. Okay. And it needs to be literal. It needs to be precise right. so that the instructions are translated. This piece needs to go into that piece exactly. and you turn it this way. There's no way. imagery <laughs> yes, except right. for like a picture. Right. Of the... There's no interpretive yeah. thing going on. And then on, on the other end of that uh-huh. spectrum is poetry uh-huh. because there's so much at play. There's form. Right. There's imagery. There's even idioms in the original language. How do you translate idioms? Do Author's you... intent, too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There's yeah. so much at play. And when you poetry. say idiom, what, what do you mean by that? Um, but I just mean, you know, sayings that we have in, in right. English, for example. Like, for example, if I, I'm... One of these days, I'm going to translate Hamilton into uh, French or Chinese <laughs> or something. I don't wow. know. It's on my yeah. list. <laughs> Lauren loves Hamilton, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Just but, for example, let's hatch a plot blacker than the kettle call in the pot. If you were to translate that into French, would you take a different French idiom that has the same meaning as the pot calling the kettle black? Mm. Would you try to find one that rhymes with whatever other rhyme you were going to put in that line? You know, like there's just that just adds another layer. And that actually brings me to um, the whole idea of translating songs. Okay. Because that adds another layer on top of the poetry of the lyrics is the music. Mm -hmm. The rhythm is much more strict because there's a backing track. You can't just... So you, you have to pay attention to the lyrical part of it and the musicality of what you're doing as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. You know, you have to kind of respect those, but and it but it still has to make sense for the thing. Exactly. Uh-huh. And so another thing that I'm really interested in are the translations of Disney songs. And that even adds another layer to the music <laughs> because it's animation. Yeah. And so one thing that they take into account is the way that the characters' mouths are moving in the animation. Right, right. The, the whole know? physicality of it like, needs to match. Exactly. Like, right. I was at first I was very salty about the translation of Love is an Open Door salty. from Frozen into French. They translated it to L'amour est un cadeau, which means love is a gift. Huh. Um, and I was like, but doors are so important in the film. And I could go on about the imagery of doors in the film and how it's a part doors of Doors were an important metaphor in Frozen. Yes, it, it's, uh-huh. yeah. And I won't get into it, but... And I was like, gift just isn't quite there. However, cadeau, that do sound, is mm-hmm. when they said door in the original. Ah. And so I'm I'm certain that that's why they chose that They're word. They're trying to match the... The vowel sound, the shape right. of the mouths. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so there's a compromise that has to happen their there. Translation is compromise. Yeah. Really. Um, that, that That's what it is. But there are some compromises that... I, and that's why I feel like there isn't really a wrong way to do it. As uh-huh. long as you're respectful of the original culture, there isn't a wrong way to do it. Um, but it's just a matter of there are some that I agree with and some that I disagree with. Yeah. <laughs> For example, okay. and I've talked to you about this before. Uh-huh. My least favorite. So, so I, I'm. Um, I love that you have such a strong opinion. Oh yeah. About these no, I'm, I'm very. So I, I actually I started uh-huh. getting into translations of Disney movies way back um, uh-huh. with Prince of Egypt when I was a kid. Okay. Nothing about translation because on the special features. 
they had um, When You Believe one-line multilingual version. Oh. And I didn't even know that movies could be translated. You know? So now was it just uh, dubbed or did it have like a— Dubbed. What Sub- do you call it? The subtitles. Uh, yeah, the yeah, subtitles. Yeah. So, so the, the way it? it worked was the words on the screen was just the language that was being sung. Uh-huh. So not the words, but it would just say Hungarian or French. And for the next two lines, you'd hear like the Hungarian. And then the next two lines in the song, it would say Mandarin. And then you'd hear the Mandarin. So it just, that's called like a one-line multilingual thing where you're not hearing the same line over and over again. Mm -hmm. You're just hearing the entire song, but the first two lines are in English and the second two lines are in Spanish and the, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did with Frozen. I, um, in high school... By that time, I had listened to so many Disney songs in so many different languages. <laughs> it was this crazy thing. And Frozen had come out, and um, I loved it. I was obsessed with it. And I went on YouTube and found all these translations of Let It Go. Wow. Because people on YouTube, it's so cool. So, first of all, these so, trans— So, people—so, this yeah. movie—God, it was such a huge smash, Absolutely. I guess. Were, so, people in different cultures they translated let it go to their own language that's what you were listening to yes and and really mm-hmm. it's not just random people in the country these are the official translations okay. that were played in the theaters now did you so how did you understand the translations exactly. is my first that's question that's what i'm getting to okay. so on youtube People that speak those languages fluently mm-hmm. post videos of their translations of the official translation back into okay, English. So that Does that make my sense? My brain has, yes. So, I'm, I just want to follow this. Yes. So, so there's, let's say it's Hungarian or whatever. Exactly. So they're singing it in Hungarian, but somebody has to tell us what they're singing exactly. now. And right. a lot of, if you so see somebody on, did that. Exactly. If you okay, see on a it. YouTube video, you know, part of your world, Spanish, subs plus trans. That means that they have the subtitles in Hungarian for exa- or Spanish, um, and then their translation of that back into English. So that wow. one is a random person translating it into English. Got it. But translating the official Latin American, for example, Spanish mm-hmm. translation into English. And now I would assume that when you heard these translations, the first thing you're struck by, wait, this is different. Exactly. Uh-huh. They're saying something different than what the, than what exactly. the words of— let it go. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so, God, I compared so many different ones. And uh-huh. some of them went are down the rabbit brilliant. Hole. <laughs> yes. Some of them are so brilliant. Like, oh, and I made, an I made my own one-line multilingual version, learned it, 15 languages, and that's like my party trick. Like, right. I can sing Let It Go in 15 <laughs> languages. <laughs> Don't speak most of them. But, yes. you know, I learned it. Um, uh-huh. But, for example, the, sec- the first foreign language that I put in there was Hungarian because uh-huh. the line is, my heart is locked in ice here at the brim of the world. Like, the, wait, what? That's their line? or <laughs> that, that, That's the English translation of the Hungarian version of a kingdom of isolation, and it looks like I'm the queen. Okay, so say that line, a kingdom so, of isolation. Uh-huh, and it looks like I'm the queen. And they that's trans- the English version. Okay, and they translated to the literal translation that they did is? Is, my heart is locked in ice here at the brim of the world. Wow. Oh, my God. Interesting. All right, Hungarian. All right. And in Hungarian, do you remember what it sounds like in Hungarian? I don't speak Hungarian. Ah. My accent is probably not correct, but those so, are essentially so the So part of the goal is to keep the musicality, even though it takes on a different meaning. Exactly. In this case, the meaning is... Arguably more interesting. Yeah, that's why I put yeah. it in there. Right. And, and that's how I organized my multilingual version. Okay. I took into account the, the translations that I liked, but I also made it rhyme in between languages. I, I spent a lot of time on this. Okay, so wait. For, I, I have to yeah. construct this for everybody. So here's what Lauren did. She glossed over it very quickly. Uh-huh. So Lauren 
you know, loved Frozen. You, and when I say loved, Lauren's love for something is beyond all loves, right? <laughs> so that means she goes down the rabbit hole, you know, and she yeah. just immerses herself. Yeah. So she wanted to do a multilingual version of Frozen you, in of how go. many languages? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it, it was 13. 13. And then eventually I added two more. I e- did like another Each version. language gets a couplet? Essentially. Essentially, it's, it's right. Pretty much. And some of these translations were already done? All of them were already. I did not were, translate anything. So you didn't translate anything. I found anything. them on YouTube and okay. learned them. So you learned the exactly. ones that you liked the most. Exactly. And put it all together. Like I made a huge thing. Google Doc. Got it. Like put all of the lyrics of each version one after another side by side with their English translations. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of went through and I was like, this line's really good in Cantonese. Mm-hmm. This line's really good in Polish. This line's really good in Italian. Right. And I just kind of made my own structure of it. So, and then you sang, and I remember this, you sang Let It Go with all, with like in 15 different languages exactly. in this one song. Now, did you ever go back and write out what that new Let It Go song is. Yeah, and so what Mm -hmm. I did was I I made like a YouTube video um, Mm -hmm. and I put, I I did the similar thing of what the other YouTubers do is I put the lyrics in the language I was singing with the English translation underneath. Oh, so you can see both. Exactly, because that's Mm -hmm. part of the reason why I chose many of the lines. Right. But some of them, like I was saying, I chose because they rhymed. Mm -hmm. Like I made the Korean line Fo- be followed by the Spanish line because they rhymed ah. with each other. So it was like something like and then libre soy, libre soy, no me verán llorar. Like I made those ah, lines go with each other, you know? Yeah. And and because those translations already existed, exactly. all you have to do is play with those exactly. and figure out you that was your puzzle. Yeah. And I'm working right? on it with how far I'll go from Moana, but I'm waiting for the Hawaiian translation. Uh-huh. I can't I can't in good conscience <laughs> like do a how far I'll go multilingual version before they've made the Hawaiian one. Because I've heard right. that they're working on a Hawaiian translation of Moana. Uh-huh. And they've they've translated into uh Tahitian, I believe, either Tahitian or Maori, but um they like, I yeah. I have to wait for that. But I've 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 learned some of it in Spanish. I've learned. Mm-hmm. I actually right now I know all of how far I'll go in Mandarin because mm-hmm. um, I was singing it when I was in China. And and you were telling me earlier how much you learn or how much you can learn about like people and that kind of stuff based on their dialects yeah. and regions and and how words are put together and that yeah. kind of stuff, right? Yeah. But also, <laughs> oh, and I started to say this earlier. Um, Sometimes I just don't agree with the translations <laughs> well, I love that are that. done. Okay, talk yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. Where you and, don't and, agree you know, with the translation. Who am I to say that? But right. it's just like my personal opinion. For example, mm-hmm. in the French, I, I'm not a huge fan of the French Let It Go. But my main— Why? Why aren't you a fan of the French um, Let It Go? I, I just—I've heard so many <laughs> other better so versions. That, that's honestly what it okay. is. Like the Danish one is brilliant. Uh-huh. Um, the Dutch building, the castle is fantastic. Fantastic. Like, like there are so many other great moments. I love that ones. my daughter's a snob of Let It Go. She's a, <laughs> a Let It Go of snob. The translations yeah, of Let It Go. Lauren is a Let It Go translation <laughs> snob, is what she is. Yeah, but anyways, okay. this is the example that I tell everyone. Mm-hmm. The the cold never bothered me anyway in the okay. original. Great line. Yeah, the, and and the rhythm is I don't know the what it cold means, never right? bothered me anyway. Got it. That's the rhythm. Got it. In French, le froid est pour moi le prix de la liberté, and it's like. First of all, too many syllables. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. Why are there so many syllables? But it translates to the cold is, for me, the price of liberty. And it's like, if you have too many syllables, why did you put in the for me? Like, why is it there? Why isn't it just the cold is the price of liberty? Le froid est le prix de la liberté. Mm. That's the original rhythm. Nice. But also, on a like level of meaning, the cold isn't the price of liberty. The whole point of the song is that she's like, I don't care how cold it is. I'm mm -hmm. going to be myself. Why not something like the cold is the joy of liberty? Mm. Le froid est le joie de la liberté. Like Add that. a nice internal rhyme in there. Very yeah, nice. Maybe. Very good. But anyway, so that's one of the lines that I'm salty about. Uh-huh. But there are so many great translations. Uh -huh. um, in fact, when I was in France, we had a free choice of topic for our like 20 minute oral presentation. Mm -hmm. And so I did it on the French translations of Disney songs. So funny. Of course. Mm -hmm. And like one of the ones that I love is Pocahontas. Oh, and I yeah, was telling yeah. you about this the other day. Sure. Colors of the Wind. Uh-huh. Uh, which, of course, is brilliant in English. But yeah. the French translation of that, every line <laughs> is just gold. Really? It's gold. Uh -huh. Like, for example, and then, and then here's a really cool example. So they killed, they crushed it on that one. Yes, they okay. absolutely crushed Got it. it. Yes. And this is one really interesting example of things that are taken into account when you make a translation. The first line of the second verse is... Come run the hidden pine trails of the forest. Okay. Which in French is courons dans les forêts d'or et de lumière, which means let's run in the forests of gold and light. Okay. And so you're kind of like, okay, that, right. that's, that's an interesting light. choice. Okay. Okay. Pretty imagery. Nice. But if you look at that part in the song, they're literally running through the forest and it's all this golden light is spilling everywhere. Ah. And so that's something that wasn't in the original English lyrics. So they're matching the visual. But it was visual. in the animation, exactly. Yeah. So they took it from the animation. And I think that's brilliant. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I absolutely love that. See, France Lawrence giving you props. Yeah. I <laughs> I complain about France a lot, but I, I, of course, am a Francophile. So. Uh -huh. But um, another one of my favorite lines from the French translation is, so the original um, English is, but still I cannot see if the savage one is me, how can there be so much that you don't know? Wow. Drag him. Mm -hmm. um, but Drag in, him. Yeah. That's so funny. It's great. Colors of the Wind is an excellent <laughs> song. But in French, it's, mais si dans ton langage, tu emploies le mot sauvage, c'est que tes yeux sont remplis de nuages. Now, that means, um, but if in your language you use the word savage, then it's your eyes that are filled with clouds. Whoa. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> Pocahontas, go off. Like, tell him. Yes. That's great. And it rhymes. You have an internal rhyme, like, langage, language, sauvage. Savage, nice. nuage, clouds. Very good. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Like, That's nice. It's fantastic. So in that sense, you have, a, once again, a deeper meaning, but you're keeping the essence of it, and you're using, you're, you're rhyming in another language. Yeah. And doing all these other things. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, of course, I, I have to say, even when I'm saying that I'm salty at certain translations, sure. I give mad props to these translators because it's yeah. a crazy difficult it's job. It's such a difficult job because they have to be technical and creative, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, I have to give props, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, they, they really do some beautiful work. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also cool comparing different singers. Like, my mm-hmm. favorite singer of Let It Go is the Danish woman. Really? Yeah. she. Mm-hmm. I just, her voice, I actually prefer her voice to Adina Menzel. Uh-huh. Just in that song. Yeah. Love Adina Menzel. Yeah, she's um, brilliant. But the, the Danish singer is just phenomenal. What is it about her voice that well, it's you it's so realize? powerful. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of them in the core, in even in that first chorus, sometimes they're still using their head voice or mm-hmm. it's more chill. And that means it builds later, which is cool. Mm-hmm. But the Danish one is already like, mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, okay. Whoa. And she's singing, never again will I listen to them. And you're uh-huh. like, oh, <laughs> all right. So that was really cool. Very nice. What else should we know, Lauren? What else? I'm going into senior year. That's pretty crazy. And you're so you're about to start your. This is the paper you were talking about. The thesis, the uh, translation. That's what you're Tang Dynasty poetry. Yeah. Okay. So you'll be working on that this year. Yeah, that'll mostly Mm -hmm. be in the spring. But um, in the fall, I I'm taking like readings in classical Chinese because I need one more Chinese class. And I'm taking like a bunch of intro courses my senior year. Uh (laughs) Um, Intro to translation studies, intro to linguistics, you know. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be a very linguistic-y, language-y semester. And I know Lauren is also a performer, and I know you Mm -hmm. have interest in doing that. But in this area of your life, what do you hope to possibly do with this? Do you have any plans for this? Yeah, because people always ask me, like, what are you going to do with that major? Mm -hmm. And I love teaching. Teaching is a huge passion of mine. Mm -hmm. And even though I, I teach a lot of dance and stuff like that, I would love to teach English as a foreign language in France or in China or it's, even here. Or here in America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you um, teach it to people who speak English. Yeah, or, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, or even teach French or Chinese here uh-huh. in America. Um, so that, right, uh, th- that's not on my radar at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's not what I'm pursuing currently. Um, I, I'm planning to get my master's soon-ish, but not mm-hmm. right after I graduate. Right. Um, but it's going to happen eventually. Would, like, you, would you ever want to do these types of creative translations yourself? Yeah. Uh-huh. I'd, I'd be very interested in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's real I was looking at, at like master's programs of becoming a translator you know mm-hmm. I was just looking at a lot of freelance translating agencies mm-hmm. and, and what requirements you needed to work there yeah. and that led me to look at the programs and you know sure. it's a very interesting world that I, I really don't know a whole lot about like at mm-hmm. the moment it's more of a hobby passion yeah, thing exactly right. um, and so I'd love to like learn more about you know the professional world of that but I do kind of like having it as my hobby passion thing yeah. and not really having to have mm-hmm. it be work. By know? the way, this is advice I give all the time, and I'm sure I've given to you. It's you don't have to like you can have a passion. It doesn't have you don't have to make money from your passion. Yeah. It doesn't have to be your job, the thing that pays your bills. It can stay your passion. Yeah. And it could it could be your escape from your life of work and all that stuff. Yeah. So I think it's awesome that you have something like this that you can go down the, the rabbit hole yeah. with, you know, which is great. For me, it's of course, it's magic. A lot of, you <laughs> yeah. know, you know. The literal rabbit hole. I know, the little rabbit <laughs> the hole. Hat. There you go. Well, Lauren, oh thanks God. so much for coming in and, and yeah, talking about uh, your passion of language and everything. It's real fascinating. And um, I encourage everybody, you know what you want to do now is go on YouTube or go through some of these Just things. Just look at all yeah. of them. And what got me started with these uh-huh. was I, I was saying the, quote, correct languages for these movies. Uh-huh. I wanted to listen to Aladdin in Arabic. Yeah. I wanted to listen to Mulan in Mandarin and Cantonese. Oh, the place that matches where— Exactly. Okay, got it. Um, and Anastasia in Russian, uh-huh. and Hercules in Greek, and Rapunzel in German, wow. and Snow White in German. 
Roman and Cinderella in did, French. Did it feel you know? more authentic in those languages? It's funny. Um, for some of for some of them, it was just kind of another cool way to hear it. Mm-hmm. But for some of them, yes. Like Honor to Us All sounds really, really good in both Mandarin and Cantonese because there's a lot of short syllables in the music. Da 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 da. Blah, 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 blah. And that works well with both Mandarin and Cantonese because it's a language that is made up of short syllables, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. Um, and it's the same thing with Once Upon a December from Anastasia. Uh-huh. Uh, it just, hearing that in Russian, I don't even know what it was. Maybe it's kind of the minor key of the song. <laughs> I might uh-huh. be, like, projecting some sure. s- stereotypes onto that. But, but like, it... It just, I really liked the flow of Once Upon a December in Russian. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't speak Russian, but like, just, just the sound of it. Mm-hmm. Not really. I don't mm-hmm. remember the words. I, I know the song um, in English, but yeah, it just, I don't know, the consonants and, and yeah. the vowel sounds just went really well with the music of that. Before we go, a couple of bars of Let It Go. Maybe your favorite <laughs> okay. part. Uh, let's see. Maybe okay, your favorite the, language. The part? building, the castle, mm-hmm. um, I put in Dutch. Oh, the, the translation is My powers are increasing and create a colonnade of stone. Yikes. My soul is building a castle of ice crystals all around me. In each crystal resounds the echo of my mind. I'm never going back. The past is past. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Min krachnim to en skepten zeilen rai van steen. Min zilbaut en kastil van ice kristallen omerheen. In el kristal vir klinkt de echo van mein geest. Hanoi ni noi terug, t verleden is geweest. Like, yes, Dutch, yes. That's awesome. Laren, Lauren, thank you so much. I almost said Laren. We were talking about <laughs> oh, pronunciations yeah, we <laughs> earlier in the car. Laren. Lauren Wilmore, everybody. Laren telling us Wilmore. about languages. I learned every time I talk to you, I learn something. It's great. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Good luck me. in your last year in school. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. Very happy to have on the show uh, a good friend of mine, I'll say. (laughs) Uh, But someone who's had such an interesting journey in her life, especially recently. I should say, who is the um, author of Beneath the Tamarind Tree, A Story of Courage, Family, and the Lost School Girls of Boko Haram. Welcome to Black on the Air. Thank you. It's so nice to have you here and talk about this because I know how passionate you are about this whole thing. Of course, because you wrote the book about it. Yeah, you know, you just have to be. Yes, (laughs) in Africa in general. Yes, as an African. As an African. A true... African American, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get into identity. This I, could be a whole different conversation. I know, identity politics. But congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank um, you. How, how long has it been in the works writing this? I would say officially it's been about two years mm-hmm. in the works for writing it. But I think that ever since the girls were taken when it first mm-hmm. happened in 2014 right. you know the commitment to the story was was established yeah. and i felt i would continue to tell the story in mm-hmm. some form yeah this was one of those things that i remember when it happened it was you know the whole it's one of those things where like the whole world seems mm-hmm. to care about and then after a while like everything you know it just seems to kind of go Fade away Fade away. and you know sometimes you think what happened with that thing you know what's it but you were like 
a dog with a bone, right? You were on that thing. <laughs> yeah. You were not going to let that go, right? Yeah, I think it's so true. And it says a lot about where we are as yeah. a society and as a world that things can take hold mm-hmm. so enormously and so completely that you couldn't go anywhere without hearing the hashtag, bring back our girls. Right. Celebrities from Michelle Obama, Malala, Alicia Keys. Beyond, I mean, everybody was there with the picture and the mm-hmm. bring back our girls and posting it on social media. And there was this engagement, which I guess, as it turned out, was only surface level. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say people don't care. I think there's a lot going on in the world and a lot of competing interests. And right. this fell away out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. It's all the way in Africa. The pictures weren't there to support the story, to keep feeding the beast. Mm-hmm. And people just moved on. But I just felt, you know, as a child of Africa, as someone whose mother comes from a place not too different from the town these girls are from, mm-hmm. a place of just limited resources. Where is your Where is your mom from? So my mom's from um, a town called Rotifunk in Sierra Leone, which mm-hmm. is, you know, neighboring um, country to right. uh, Nigeria. And... You know, she grew up in a household where her parents weren't educated. You know, my grandmother sold goods in a market. Sure. My grandfather was a farmer part-time. Yeah. So, you know. It's real coming up from from the dirt, literally, Literally, right? Literally. Mm -hmm. So for me, the transformation or the pivot point is education. That's what changed my mother's life. Your mother, you tell the story in the book about your mother went from that to England in a sense, you Mm -hmm. know, to, you know, which is where you were born. Were Mm -hmm. you born in England? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And how did she meet your dad? She met my dad in Sierra Leone, actually. Uh-huh. You know, they were they, they came up during that time of um, the Brits, you know, with colonialism mm-hmm. having a great hand in the country in terms of um, not just legislatively and, and controlling it, but also having these established scholarships and pathways for kids in these countries mm-hmm. to go to England to study. Mm-hmm. And so my parents met in Sierra Leone. They were in high school when they met. Uh, my mother loves to tell the story that my father <laughs> stepped on her foot That's as his way hilarious. to get her attention. Well, you got to do something. I mean, hey, you know, you needs know. must, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> and they dated and ended up going to England where they, uh, you know, my father was an attorney, my mm-hmm. mother uh, an academic. Yeah. And they met there and then had us there, moved back to Sierra Leone. So I've always had a life that has been between places, mm-hmm. you know, so. So uh, you had kind of a dual identity in some ways, right? Or now triple, or with, triple. with America yeah. in the Yes, mix. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 that's why I say let's not talk identity because it is. This is black in the air. That's all we talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I'll get my coat. Um, So, you know, with that kind of upbringing, this story meant a lot to me. Yes. You know, you have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of connections to this story. Yeah. And and you were working in news at the time at CNN International. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. it was, um, you know, they brought me to the States, CNN. Mm-hmm. I came here in 2005 um, with a commitment to telling global stories. Mm-hmm. And that was really why I left the UK and said, this is a network that is really engaged with all parts of the world. All parts of the world are mm-hmm. equally weighted. And it was while I was there that the story broke, and I just— Were you here in America when it broke, or were mm, you somewhere else? No, Because CNN International, you you guys were headquartered here, right? Yeah, and we're uh-huh. all over the place, or mm-hmm. they are, as I'm no longer with them. Yes, she's no they longer. Are. That's a whole other story. That's a whole other story. <laughs> um, you no, know, um, Atlanta, London, Hong Kong, oh, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in Atlanta. When it mm-hmm. broke and right. in the newsroom and got the word that these girls had been taken from a school. Yeah. Let's talk about this incident itself. Uh, remind people what happened. Maybe take us through it. There were like 276 girls, mm-hmm. I think was the mm-hmm. number. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
and they were taken from a school. That's right. So, and but this happened overnight. Like, yeah. were they uh, they were boarded at the school? Yes. Okay. That's exactly right. So they were in a boarding school, mm-hmm. um, the the government girls' school in Chibok, and they were there. And what part of Nigeria is Chibok in? Northeastern, Northeast. northeastern Nigeria. Is, is it kind of a rural part of Nigeria? Is it? I mean, there's definitely a there's a def- definite income disparity oh, between the north and the south. Okay, good. Um, southern Nigeria, Not good, but yeah, yeah, but <laughs> right. so it, you know, it's well mm-hmm. established that the the north isn't as developed mm-hmm. as the south. Where you know, if that divide between where you know Abuja Lagos are and, and mm-hmm. the north, um, and that's part of the whole issue with the birth of Boko Haram, the yeah. terrorist group, that the north feels. And and the the income disparity, the inequality, the poverty levels helped mm-hmm. foment a terror group effectively. And there's kind of a history of this, I guess. With um, is was the North more Muslim and yes. the South more Christian? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it was kind of set up that way. You know, it's the mm-hmm. construct of colonialism, right? right? That mm-hmm. there are all these countries in the world, from Iraq to mm-hmm. to Nigeria, countries, places that have been merged that weren't meant to be merged. Right. People who had different cultures and beliefs and outlooks that were happy separate, but were forced together. Mm-hmm. And that was the British. That's yeah, you mm-hmm. got to thank them for that. Yeah, well, there's, there's your there, town, well, part of your you people know, too. And yeah. there are a few of them. It's not yes. just the Brits going around right. carving up Africa. That's true. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, Nigeria was a construct mm-hmm. um, of, of of the Brits. And as a result, you merged this this kind of Muslim, not the kind of, a Muslim, predominantly Muslim North with mm-hmm. a Christian animist South. Mm-hmm. And those tensions... The, it's been an uneasy coupling. It's never quite resolved, but somehow Nigeria has gotten along, I guess. Is that a fair way to say it, or has it? I I, I would say, um, as, we, as we like to say in Africa, we're managing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're managing. I mean, the problems with Nigeria today are so widespread mm-hmm. from the Northeast, where Boko Haram, the terrorist group that is involved with the Chibok girls, is still running rife mm-hmm. and causing instability to the northwest where now they have issues with cattle herders and farmers and there's mass killings to widespread abductions and to the the Niger Delta in the south-south where the oil is and there are problems there to the east where the Mm Ibos want to secede. The whole country Mm -hmm. practically is aflame with instability and Mm. problems. And you talk about even there's class issues in Nigeria mm. where there's probably superiority complex, I would think, from Nigeria proper and some of these other areas, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, mm-hmm. it's wealth, you know, wealth and wealth right. and, and, and power. And, you know, I think that cuts across whether you're Muslim or Christian. I think it's wealth, wealth and influence, mm-hmm. right, that ultimately rules the day in Nigeria. Nigeria is a country also, I don't you know, want to make clear, of incredible wealth where you'll see— Rolls Royces and, and Lamborghinis and people have homes really? that of people have homes that you walk into and they could be on Rodeo or Beverly. I mean, it's there's incredible. This wealth. is in Nigeria. This is in Nigeria proper. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there is that Nigerian prince. He does exist. Oh, he does. <laughs> he does. I wouldn't look for him. They on always Facebook. want me to help them with my bank account. I wouldn't account. <laughs> look for them on Facebook though. Right. Um, but um, you know. They consume, they're amongst the, the largest consumers of champagne in the world. Really? Oh, champagne? Of champagne in Nigeria. They're, they're inordinate consumers of luxury, that class that I'm uh-huh. talking about. But they also have one of the biggest, if not the biggest, income disparity uh-huh. in the world between rich and poor. 
Yeah, if you ever want to see that, that that's a test subject, I guess, is Nigeria, right? Exactly. Um, let's talk about Boko Haram. What is the genesis of Boko Haram? And let's try to describe this group before we get into the events, yeah. as, well, as much as we know. Yeah, I mean, Boko Haram mm-hmm. is a group that sprung up in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. founded by this, this man called Muhammad Yusuf. Mm-hmm. And essentially, their driver was looking around at the social conditions in northeastern Nigeria and seeing corruption, um, inequality, lack of opportunity for youth, high unemployment, and just it, it's the same conditions that's, that create terrorist groups everywhere, mm-hmm. a sense of injustice and inequity. Now, some people decide to use the law and, you sure. know, and ballot boxes, and some people decide that when that is fused with religion— mm-hmm. As he, as the part, which was his his um, uh, crux, if you will, that there was all this income disparity, all this unfairness, all this kind of, I guess, uh, bad behavior, which would be reined in if Islamic law was in place. Mm-hmm. Basically, if, Sharia, if you had Sharia law, law, if you had Sharia law, it would solve everything. Well, according to them, according, according to, to them, him. and yes. their brand of, of, of Sharia right. law, mm-hmm. um, and so he set off on this path to try and influence local politicians. As there was this move to say Sharia law should be in place, and it is in place mm-hmm. in certain parts of Nigeria. Um, really, fast forward, he wasn't satisfied mm-hmm. with um, the change these politicians he had supported. Brought in, he felt he wanted a more strident was, form. How was he communicating this? Was he? I mean, he basically he started. He was giving speeches. He was building a level of popularity. You know, just like with all of these situations, politicians saw he would be a source of votes. Oh, okay. And was he a charismatic leader? Yes, he was a charismatic mm-hmm. speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of young people were looking for a voice that mm-hmm. would speak to their sense of disenfranchisement. Right. And so he was, you know, I was I wouldn't say in cahoots or co-opted, but he certainly was um, engaging with people who were running in elections, local state elections, who mm-hmm. saw him as a pathway to winning. And the promise, as is reported, and we, the research shows the promise was, you know, support me, get your followers to back me, and you'll get the Sharia law that you want. Okay. He didn't get the Sharia law he wanted. Right. And then he... Basically, with that, the speeches and the incitement, uh, it just grew. And then they started moving into low-grade criminality. Mm -hmm. The police tried to rein them in, and it just escalated and escalated and escalated till he was killed in police custody Mm -hmm. um, in the mid-2000s. He was killed. um, And was it seen as a martyrdom by the people who were Mm absolutely. And his body was laid out, and they captured, you know, the cell phone footage of Mm. him dead and photos of him bullet-ridden, and they claim that— he was trying to escape, but for his followers, um, he was a martyr. Basically, what ended up happening is they tried to crush the group, mm-hmm. um, killed him in the process. The group went underground and reemerged in 2009 as this virulent, violent, jihad-waging mm-hmm. outfit that basically said they wanted to establish a caliphate. That's so fascinating to me. It's such a... <sighs> God, it, it's such an examination of of that type of um, phenomena in general when you think of ISIS mm-hmm. or or even Al-Qaeda yeah, and some of these groups. You know, they seem to have this type of beginning that almost are humble beginnings of, of a very simple thing. And how they – to me, it's a lesson in how – 
Power absolutely does corrupt. Really? <laughs> you know, completely. It absolutely does, no matter whose hands power is in. Yeah, you know? I and think the, the truth. But it's the manner in which it corrupts, specifically in this case, you know, which is uh, endemic to our current times, you know, where, you know, in this case, Islam is connected to these mm-hmm. types of movements, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. with Sharia law being the thing. But even Sharia law doesn't explain it all. No, you know, no, no, it doesn't. The criminality part of it and the... The wanting to, uh, you know, the caliphate part of it and all that is is just what's endlessly fascinating. I always mm. say that um, with these groups, um, the, the, the seed for all of them mm-hmm. is always a sense of injustice. Mm-hmm. And there's a perpetrator. There's a perpetrator. <laughs> yes. There's a sense of victimhood. Mm-hmm. And the key is always, I, I always think, and I don't know why it's missed all the time, and it's clearly complicated, obviously, because we haven't been able to solve any of these right. problems, is the engagement with these groups and, and the kind of... It, it's always missed. And then, because it never starts at, like, 10. It starts at zero, and then it escalates. Mm-hmm. And I'm never sure why there isn't... Like, in the case of Boko Haram, the point was, initially, is that there was a sense of inequity and unfairness, and our people have no opportunity and all the rest of it. But they were just dismissed. There was never that engagement. There's always that moment that's right. missed. Then you get something worse. To engage, <laughs> right? right? Yes. To constructively yes. engage. And then by the time you want to, it's an idea and it's yeah. fused with violence and religion. And you've lost the moment. And it only becomes an, an unnegotiable issue at that point, you know, because when you get into the realm of, you know, where religion is in it and then there are these things that can't be solved in a secular way. You know, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. only God really has the answer yeah. to things. How do you negotiate yeah, with yeah. that? No, no how do you? Exactly. Yes, exactly. I mean, the Sunnis in Iraq and, you know, mm-hmm. um, Al-Qaeda and others were born out of a sense that they'd been disenfranchised mm-hmm. with the falling of Saddam, right? Right. And they, you know, when the Americans came in and they they, they disbanded the military and they mm-hmm. kicked them all out of, of the police and all the rest of it. And there wasn't that engagement right. to say... Let's pay attention to right. what these people are saying. And maybe there's a way to kind of like mm-hmm. meet what is a sense of social injustice or inequity. And the Shias thought the Sunnis, though, because they were in the minority. Absolutely. But you know, were again, unfairly in But it's majority. the same point. Right. It's a lack right. of engagement yeah. with communities and an inability to have a, a, converse, a dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's the inability to have dialogue. It is the closing up of the space for freedom of speech and for a true exchange of opinion, saying, hear me and where I sit and my problems, that that allows these groups to fester. Yeah. You know, and that's why we need to, in all societies, have an open democracy and in all societies have a true two-way conversation mm-hmm. because when you don't, you get these groups. Right. And, uh, okay, so that's so fascinating, this subject. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know it so well, too. It's just endlessly fascinating because I honestly, this is one of those things where I have no idea what solutions are in this yeah. arena. Yeah, not at this stage. No clue. Not yes, when you're not here. at this stage. Correct. Like, I'm with you. At yeah. this stage, when you're here now, mm-hmm. when it's fused with a fundamentalism, right. um, an ideology, um, a sense of only God, that they're yeah. on God's side. That's the real solution. Now yes. when you're on God's side, well. How are you going to argue with I don't that? know what to yes, say to you. Exactly. I'm right. out. Like, yes. I'm tapping out. Right. But again, you know, we, we, we say what's happening out. I mean, I was just reading um, yesterday that um, 
in the case of how they're dealing with some of the ISIS captors, mm-hmm. um, in terms of there's a different way of dealing with it in, in Syria versus in Iraq, sure. or I say in the Kurdish regions, regions versus Iraq, rather. And the Kurds are basically giving them very light sentences and giving them like two years mm-hmm. for kind of minor offenses, whereas in Iraq, they're killing them. Right. Right. And the question is, if we're looking for a solution, which is the better way, right? <laughs> but it's ISIS. No, we're I know, but the, the, too, right? the, the, no, Kurds, the, whole, the Kurds like, are saying irony. the Kurds yes. are saying if you kill them, right, you're just keeping the cycle sure. going. And then others are saying, well, if you give them a light sentence and they walk out, they're just going to go back and do absolutely back to the point. Yes. What's the solution? That's what I mean. There, to me, that is exactly what I mean. There is no side you could be in there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no mm-hmm. side. It's it is this. Uh, it's the riddle of the sphinx. It, is? You know, it really is. You know? uh, let's go to that night then and uh, take us kind of through the course of events of what happened with these girls, and then we'll get into your involvement with it as well. How were they abducted from from the school? So, I mean, the point to make, first of all, is that it was a boarding school, which is very commonplace mm-hmm. um, in, in in Africa in particular, mm-hmm. where um, in, in countries that have, you know, fairly weak educational systems in the rural areas, they tend to have one central school in a district mm-hmm. where everyone just sends their kids to, and that's a boarding school. And was this a segregated school? Was it just a girls' yeah, school? No, it was, mm-hmm. So it was a segregated school, though with all the instability and the violence caused by Boko Haram, because mm. they'd been, you know, on a rampage uh-huh. for, for years. Um, they had allowed boys to attend the school during the day. Mm-hmm. So the boys would come during the day. The girls would, would be boarders, as, as they were known. And in actual fact, when this happened, April 14th, 2014, you know, there was a state of emergency in place in three states, including Borno State, which is where Chibok is. Mm-hmm. So Borno, Yobe, Adamawa, these three neighboring states had a state of emergency. Um, and with that state of emergency, um, they had decided that schools in Borno should be shut down because Boko Haram was on this campaign of destroying schools, attacking schools because of their ideology of wanting to destroy secular education. Right. So if you weren't going to learn the Quran, if it wasn't, then you that know, does not need to exist. It doesn't need to exist. <laughs> right. Having said that. Yes. We're going to use cell phones and we're going to like, you know what I mean? We're going to ride motorbikes. You know, everything that science has taught us, we're going to enjoy. We'll be in the dark ages for this this level of thought, but not this level. Not for this level of thought. Mm -hmm. So um, schools were supposed to be closed, but this school in particular had remained open and it was being used as as an examination center, as a test center. Okay. Because kids who couldn't take exams in the other schools because they were closed, could come to the central location mm-hmm. to take these end-of-school exams, mm-hmm. which would determine you going on to university and all the rest of it. So they were critical exams. And, you know, you, you want to take the exams so you can get on with your summer holiday and get on with your life. You want to be the next Aisha. You know, <laughs> we're praying for that for many more. And um, so the school was being used. These girls were there. Um, with it being not a full out of session, if you will, there was light security, which is bewildering considering the fact that Boko Haram was, you know, on a tear. And we're making their intentions clear. Oh, we're making their intentions clear. Mm -hmm. Um, But they had fairly light security. There Mm -hmm. were, there was a smattering of teachers. Again, there wasn't teaching happening. The girls were taking tests then going back to the dorms. So there was a smattering of teachers. And the girls 
felt that it was, you know, just a normal day. You know, some had exams, some didn't. They were running around the place, giggling, having mm-hmm. meals, studying. Um, and the approximate ages of the girls? Um, between 18 and 19. So okay. they were finishing high school. Okay, got it. So, you know, there were some were, you know, on cell phones talking to boyfriends they, wouldn't, they weren't <laughs> supposed to have. <laughs> right, right, um, right. You know, they were. Some things are just the same everywhere. Anywhere in the world. <laughs> yes, exactly. Some were sitting outside the, the hostels watching girls play and, you know, cheering them on. It was just a normal school evening. Uh-huh. It was hot really hot. It was April. It was hot. It was muggy. And so a lot of them were outside just because of the heat. Um, They lived in these dorms, which were really bare bones. Um, They had bunk beds, but some slept on mattresses. Uh They had a cupboard. They had to keep their own cutlery and plates. Uh Um, There wasn't a dining room. They'd go to the kitchens, get their food and bring it back or eat somewhere in the compound. It was very basic. There was no power. Uh They had to get their own water um, from a borehole, a well. They used that to bathe. Um, you know, it's basic. But right. to make the point, a lot of these girls came from homes with limited means. Right. So, yeah. you know. It's kind of what they knew. It's what they knew. Right. Um, they went to bed thinking in the cases of some of them that they were going to take an examination the next day. And for, for the girls I talk about in my book, um, they were just awoken by either friends or just the sound of gunfire. Just mm. pandemonium. And, you know, in, in the case of, you know, Priscilla, um, you know, one of the girls in my in, in my book, mm-hmm. she's, you know, so they, they, they weigh her and uh, immediately they're like, something is wrong. Like they all know, they can hear screaming, they can hear gunfire, but they know something is happening, but they don't know the source of the violence. Got it. Some have come from areas where... Um, They've, they've seen Boko Haram appear before. So their Im- immediate thought was this is the terror group. Um, what is their – do you know what their – you know, here we have a certain attitude. But did they have a certain attitude about the terror group? Like is there terror exhaustion at all where it's like, oh, God, it's Boko Haram? Like is there any of that or is it like – Fear of it immediately. It's fear of it immediately. uh, But I think leading up to it, because this is a question I kept asking them, you know, the girls that I spoke to for the book. I mean, were you afraid? Yes. I mean, before this happened, were you in school in a state of constant fear? Exactly, right. And they go, no. They said that, you know, it had never come that close to them. Mm -hmm. So they were able to kind of have a a mental break. Their parents weren't feeding them a sense of fear. Like, you should be afraid. And the the key thing in all of it also that can't be brushed aside is Chibok is a Christian community Mm -hmm. in the predominantly Muslim north. But it's also a fervent, deep kind of almost evangelical faith. Fundamentalist almost, which is fascinating that it's in. Yes, it's this little dot in the Muslim. Totally, uh, totally. And that faith. Mm -hmm kind of bound them Mm -hmm. and their parents said, nothing will happen to you. God won't let anything happen to you. And the girls themselves really took a day-to-day attitude of God is with us. We will always be safe. Mm -hmm. So I think they literally, they blocked it out with prayer. They locked it. It was like out of sight and kept out of mind with prayer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was a question and a, a debate in some hostels. Do we run? when we don't quite know what the source of the violence is? Or do we stay and pray? Mm. And the majority of girls decided that they would stay and they would pray. Wow. And part of the issue is also, in some of the cultural context is, 
there had been incidents leading up to which when people buy the book and read about, read the book, they'll yes. find out mm-hmm. that there had been incidents leading up to this attack, which had caused the school authorities to say, if there is an incident, you must stay. Stay put until the teachers come and tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. If you run, you could get into trouble. Bearing in mind, this is the North where girls are raised to be obedient and, you know, docile and Mm -hmm. law-abiding. That weighed heavily. Now, I wonder in America, (laughs) I think about this all the time. If you told a group of teenage girls that, and this happened, how many of them wouldn't have just said, I'm out? Well, what's interesting is that we're dealing with a different form of it here where you have the school shootings. Yeah. You know, um, where what does a student do? You know, do they get under the desk? Do they stay still? Do they try to run? I mean, people have suggested they even try to attack the yeah. attacker, which is ridiculous, too. I mean, it's it's in a whole different area here, which, I mean, it's not quite the same. No, but, but I think that— But this the, notion of what you're told to do yes, and what you actually should, absolutely. would do. Yeah. But I think that in America, you know, I'm thinking in real time here. I haven't thought about this before, mm-hmm. but I do feel as if— Students in such an awful, desperate, and God forbid that ever happens, you know, again, but sadly that we seem to be in a cycle, but mm-hmm. that they feel they have options, right? That yes. it is, they have agency to make that choice. Mm-hmm. They know what has been told, but they also feel empowered as individuals to say, I know what they said, but that doesn't seem like the right move for me right now. So I'm not doing that. And there, mm-hmm. there isn't a sense of that weighing on them in the real moment of, and I'm worried about getting in trouble about it. Yeah, it, it's not connected to authority. It's, no. it's connected to the incident itself. Exactly. Where you, this is connected directly to authority exactly. and your relationship to authority. Exactly. Yes. And so for these girls, it was the fear of mm-hmm. what would happen what authority would do to them yes. if they went against the instruction. And it's, it's both the secular authority and the religious authority. Exactly. Right. You know, because they're breaking all sorts of rules now, you were told. Absolutely. And, you're, and so for them, they, they, they stayed put and they prayed. And um, a lot of them were in the schoolyard because some of them were in their dorms. They all Most of them went out into the yard and just sat and they waited. And while they waited, a man drove in on a motorbike You know, at that point, you know, um, they weren't sure who he was. He was in military garb. Mm -hmm. And he just drove in. He looked at them, didn't say a word, and drove out. Now, for the girls, the ones I've spoken to, they knew immediately there was something not quite right here. Mm. But they also knew that there was a light military presence in the town itself. Right. Could he have been a Nigerian soldier just scouting? So you check and see if they're okay. Just check and see, okay. He was followed by more men who came who said they were Nigerian soldiers and asked them to not be afraid and to gather around. They were so desperate for authority, for an authority figure to take control of the situation Hmm. that they willingly said, yes, he is. You know, they, they willed themselves to believe. Even though when they looked at them closely, some weren't wearing shoes, some looked tattered, some had turbans covering half their faces, some had water bottles on string that would, they they looked filthy. Uh But they wanted a savior. They wanted an authority figure. So when they said, we are Nigerian soldiers here to protect you, there was just this sense of relief until moments later, 
one of them basically said, you know, we are in fact Boko Haram. And if you don't do what we tell you to do, we will kill you. And with the meet the cheers of Allah Akbar, mm-hmm. it was like it kind of sealed what they knew to be true mm. all along, I would you say, deep in their hearts, that these men weren't um, here to protect them. They knew something was going they on. They knew something was going on. Mm-hmm. But I think even at that stage, I don't think... In fact, not even I don't think. I've spoken to some of the girls and they just thought they would be set free. Because the questioning was in going in a particular direction. Where are the boys? Mm-hmm. Because Boko Haram in previous attacks had attacked and killed boys in mm. schools. Mm-hmm. So they were like, where's the boys? Where's the fuel? Where's the cement, the brick-making machine? All these questions that they were like, huh? Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And they thought it would be the same as as it had played out previously where they'd attacked schools and invariably said to girls, go home and get married. Stop learning. Yes. Uh. So that's what they hoped would be their fate. Mm-hmm. So it was an utter shock when they realized that actually they were being kidnapped. And then they're, were they put on like some... Uh... Uh, vehicles or that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of girls. 276 girls, they marched out of the school that night and the teachers they were waiting for never turned up. Right. They scrambled the moment they heard, you know, gunfire. Uh Um, The light smattering of security had long disappeared when exams were over and they were essentially just left alone. And so when the men said, let's move, pointing guns at them, surrounding them and literally forcing them, just like, just corralling them and forcing them out en masse. Um, the girls had no choice. Some tried to call parents, mm-hmm. couldn't reach them. Um, as they set out on a, on a journey, a short walk, they, they said, if you have a cell phone, make sure you throw it, throw it away. If you don't, you know. I love this make sure. Mm. You know, there's, I bring that because there's some qualities of some of these soldiers where they're not quite on it. You know, they're a little... They're kids, some of them. Yes. So they're a little off, you know. Um, you tell the story of of a couple of them escaping and the manner in which they yeah. escape. Yeah, yeah. It almost seems like a comedy. I yeah. mean, I don't yeah, want to yeah, use no, the word no, comedy. No, 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 I know but, what you mean. But you know what I mean. It's like, or comedy of errors, I should say, where it's like, wait, are they actually guarding yeah, them? Yeah, What's going on? But again, they're you counting know? on fear and a sense of authority and they're armed. Right. And they're counting on them being, you know, female and just doing what they're, they're told. Just being compliant. And being compliant. Uh-huh. And so the same with throw it, otherwise we, they, you know, we'll, we'll harm you. Um, so they wouldn't expect that someone would be brazen enough brave to, and exactly, to exactly. disobey or to actually try to escape exactly. or that type of thing. Exactly. Because, yeah. I mean, again, uh, the threat of violence is just as, as powerful and it's not as if they aren't known to kill people. So, right. you, know, you know, they do kind of stand by their word. They have, you know, massacred and wiped yes. out. So for the girls... There's a real threat there. There's a real threat Absolutely. There. And they uh, made the implicit threat about uh, if you... They, uh, you have it in your book um, where uh, if you convert, everything will be okay. Yeah. But if you don't, yeah, we're going we'll kill to kill you. you. Yeah, I mean, that's a very direct message. Yes, it's a very, very direct message. Yeah. And, you know, intended to, you know, not only take over their bodies, which they'd taken their physical space, their mm-hmm. f- physical freedom from them, but to take their souls. You right. know, to, this to, is to what we want. Them. Yeah, this is yeah. what they want. Um, and, you know, again, if you're trying to establish a caliphate, you want believers, mm-hmm. right? So it stands to reason that you want to to convert 
people mm-hmm. within your caliphate. So now, was, do you think, was that their actual goal or was there something else they're going for here? They're With the looking, girls? Yes. I don't, you know, it I, doesn't seem I like truly believe they never intended to abduct the girls. It seems like they wanted some kind of political leverage or some kind of... You know, I've or said, some kind of acclaim from this. Or? I think that became a, that that came later when mm-hmm. they realized they'd taken two hundred seventy six girls and re- and saw the global reaction, and mm-hmm. they thought, "Oh wow, what an unexpected treasure!" Right. You know, let's exploit this. But I truly believe, having spoken to to, to a number of them, that. In fact, it's not even a question of needing to believe it. The girls, and I write about this in the book, the girls heard a debate about what to do with them. Mm-hmm. So they didn't even, it was almost improvised. It was almost improvised. Yeah. And there lies my fundamental sense of grievance with the Nigerian government because it was a dereliction of duty. They mm-hmm. allowed it to happen. They yeah. created a space where this could happen. Now, you can get into the federal and state government argument about whose responsibility was it, but ultimately it was government's responsibility mm-hmm. to protect these girls. And they left the space open for these men to sit and debate, should we put them in the buildings that are burning and burn them? Or should we take them with us? What yeah. should we do with them? And just having that cold discussion. Yeah. And... uh Guys, in the book, I mean, the way I should describe a couple of girls escaping, so well written. I mean, you you. feel like you're really there. Um, What was the what was the government reaction initially to this? I know the was it was there a government reaction initially, or was this this world reaction initially? What? So it's a really interesting point because you know when it came out that the girls were were missing initially in those immediate days after um, April fourteenth. The government's reaction was kind of, uh, what? Girls are missing? Uh, there was a long kind of trying. It, it seems that there was just utter confusion. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get the numbers right. Um, and some of it is, you know, again, logistics. They, where They were trying to downplay the numbers. They were totally right? trying to downplay yeah. it. They're like, they couldn't get the numbers right. Then they said they were back, all, about, all apart from eight. Um, they, we have it under control. We're looking for them. Mm-hmm. The public narrative was one of we're a government that's on it and we're doing everything to get them back. Mm -hmm. The reality was, and this is the reality that we've learned from the parents and having covered the story then, was that nothing happened. Mm. Nobody turned up. Mm -hmm. Nobody questioned them. There wasn't this this flood of security officials and investigators, as you'd expect, right? Yeah, there's no big machine that's going, that's doing anything. There's nothing. They're just there. They're Mm -hmm. just there wondering who's coming to find their children. Mm -hmm. And as the media, as the international media, from where I sat thousands of miles away in Atlanta, we're asking questions. What's happening? What's happening? Mm -hmm. And getting these muddled answers and government basically saying, we're doing this, back out. You know, we have this under control. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got to Nigeria a few weeks later, at the beginning of May, and I... I tweeted just an innocuous tweet. I'm in Nigeria. Um, I'm, I've, la- I've landed. Something really innocuous. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the hotel and just seeing my Twitter feed. Just, you know, suddenly you're like, what's going on? Why is it being flooded by all these messages? And a lot of them were asking whether I was there to cover the girls to find out the true story. Mm-hmm. Which I found really, again, just bewildering. I thought like to myself, the true story. I was like, the true story. <laughs> I, I mean, the government says that they're doing it. Yeah. We have CNN has someone on the ground. They're asking questions. What do you mean, the true story? 
anyway, it very quickly became clear that the government actually wasn't doing anything. In fact, that there had that a pocket had sprung up of people tied to the government statements made by the president's wife and just others of influence saying this was a hoax, that in fact, mm-hmm. no girls were missing. And you were in Africa to cover an economic conference at first. Yeah. And, and uh, you talk about trying to convince CNN that this story was more important. Yeah, you know, we um, we were there to cover the World Economic Forum, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it was supposed to be a celebration of Nigeria. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> You guys have more than just 90-day fiancé. You know know what I mean? Yeah, doing great. You know, economy's booming. You've overtaken South Africa. Mm -hmm. You are the powerhouse now, not just in numbers, in terms of population, but Mm -hmm. in terms of economic power. We were there. It was their moment. Mm -hmm. And this would not be good for that. Mm-mm. This story. And then mm-hmm. this was, you know, so we were going to, that was what I was there for. I had suitcases packed with formal jackets and, mm-hmm. you know, formal attire and, you know, to cover interviewing, you know, economic uh, advisors and and world leaders and all the rest of it. And then when I got those tweets and when I saw the papers and when I just sat still long enough just to kind of take the temperature of the country, I called CNN and I was like, this is not the story. I know you thought the World Economic Forum was what we were here to do, (laughs) but there is no way we can cover that story and not focus on these missing children. And I say this all the time. I have tremendous respect for CNN in that moment where, you know, we had one plan and then they scrapped it. They're like, are you sure? I'm like, there's something happening here. Mm -hmm. And they pivoted. And teams were reassigned and the focus changed. And I think it coincided us with us getting information from um, from p- parents in the village who also said um, there was nobody there. There was no search happening. Um, it coincided with the president speaking about it for the first time in close to three weeks where he effectively laid the blame at the feet of the parents. Wow. And then he laid the blame at the feet of the parents. Yeah, he basically said they aren't supplying names of their children. They're making it very difficult to mount an effective, you know, operation. We'd find them if you would just tell us who to find. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is all your fault, you know. Right. And um, CNN went all in. And they went all in, and I moved my show. I was doing a daily show at that point in mm-hmm. Atlanta. We relocated it to Abuja, the capital, to do it live every day from a hotel balcony. Wow. How and long were you there? I was there for that stint for two weeks. Okay. For the two weeks where the videos came out, for the two weeks when the world was paying attention. Right. And effectively, we got pulled as the world's attention fell away. Yeah. So the world kind of lost attention in this. How long were the girls um, abducted? How, how long did, were they there? So it's what, you know, the, and the numbers can get dizzying. So I'll just say this right at the outset. When the terrorists cleared the school, they took 276 with them. In those hours, those immediate hours that followed, 57 escaped. Wow. So fascinating. So 57 girls mm-hmm. at various points jumped off trucks, mm-hmm. escaped from the forest itself. When they stopped long enough to rest, they mm-hmm. broke away. 57 disappeared. And of the girls who were taken into captivity and held, mm-hmm. 219 disappeared from their parents. Okay. So of those 219, right now, at this point in time, 107 are back. And they were held for between two and a half years to three years. Mm. 
are just over three years. Um, are there still girls that are missing right now? Exactly. So 107 of the 219 are back, leaving 112 still in captivity. And no one knows where those girls are. And that's my focus right now. So mm-hmm. I've written this book to detail what the what these girls and and I also want to make this one point that you know Chimamanda Adichie, um, Adichie, the famous Nigerian author, you know, gave that famous TED talk about there not being one African story and right. not being not one narrative. And mm-hmm. I and I'm very clear on that that the stories I tell are the stories of these girls, sure. right? The other experiences mm-hmm. and other girls had a different journey in this tragedy. So I'm not making this. So in other words, there are other books to be written. I understand. There are other yeah. stories to be told. And I want to make that very, very clear to people. Um, so I'm telling the story of, of, of these girls and that's been done, but to me, and they, thankfully, the majority of them are in a school and they're doing well and they're being educated and following their dreams. But there are 112 girls who remain unaccounted for. And to me, where my energy goes now is into doing everything possible to put the pressure on the Nigerian government to generate global attention once more to the story, mm-hmm. to say girls matter and they should do everything within their power and not just say, we don't know who to negotiate with. We just, it's just so difficult. It is their responsibility to give these parents the answers they deserve and bring their children back. And um, part of what's fascinating about your book is you actually went on the journey with with, mm. uh, a with group the 21, of, the first 21 to come out when yeah. they went home for the very first time. And what was that like, your first interaction with them? I mean, so, it must have been pretty emotional. Right? My first interaction with them, they came out, the group of 21 girls came out October 13th, 2016. Mm-hmm. And I was in New York um, on a publicity tour for the Michelle Obama film, mm-hmm. Educating Girls Around the World. Your girl. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's her my big right my now. big sister yes, exactly. she, she's you know <laughs> at first I, the first time I met her I said something like you know uh-huh. I, I could be because I'd be mistaken for being their child um, President and Mrs. Obama's child and I'd actually said I think to, he was born in Kenya right? yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and I'd said to the person in a souk in Morocco yeah I am right. and so I told her the story but now as I'm aging clearly the last time I met her she was like we could be sisters uh, so, <laughs> so I'm moving from, from child to sister, sister. That's so, um, so I'm still mm-hmm. dealing with that um, mm-hmm. aging, but um, so for I met them. I, I was in New York on this publicity trail, and I woke up and saw the news that these girls were out, and didn't even know what to think. But packed my bags and flew to Nigeria that night, convinced CNN to let me go, mm-hmm. and I met them about two or three days later after their in their release. Okay, that was incredibly emotional for me Mm -hmm. and seeing them in those immediate moments post-release when they were so thin and so um, shell-shocked. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, they were still in that kind of, they couldn't quite believe they were free. I felt really guilty about being part of a media pack that was staring at them mm-hmm. almost like it was an exploitation it's an exploitation mm-hmm. i felt i felt really I felt really uncomfortable with that and you could see the horror in their eyes almost like what have we come mm. back to um and i spoke to them i managed to as 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 you know break rules and get mm-hmm. close to them right. and um spoke to a few of them and the thing that struck me then and it's still true now to a certain degree, is just how young 
seeming mm-hmm. they were and still are in many ways um, because even though they were 18, 19 when they were taken um, because of that culture that we're talking about they're still sheltered in some ways yeah they're not like an 18, 19 year old here I mean I, I saw a teenager in Rite Aid last night who is, must be around 17, 18 with her mother having a complete fit mm-hmm. and her mother was telling her she can't eat Cheetos because she's on the volleyball <laughs> team and she was busy like just having a meltdown oh my god um, and it was the funniest thing I've seen um Although she's not wrong. I mean, well, if you're you, going to take Cheetos away from somebody, you should have a really you good reason. She said, I'm going to tell your coach. And the kid was just like slamming the Coke in front of the, uh, oh the like, and saying, tell him. And I, and I just, that would not happen in Chibok. Let no, me just I don't say think that, so. right? Yeah. And so when I met them, I was struck by just how heads down, eyes lowered, folding into themselves mm-hmm. to make themselves invisible. And I was just very struck by how thin, 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 but more than thin, almost like their skin was almost papery, mm-hmm. you know, because they'd been starved and they just hadn't had any nutrition for such a long time that their skin was ashen and they just, they looked like they'd been, what they looked like mm-hmm. you'd expect someone who'd endured a horrific experience. Someone who's been in, a, uh, in captivity. A prison camp in, exactly, type of thing, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward to... Um, they're going home for the first time, which was just before Christmas, so mm-hmm. maybe six, seven weeks later, um, which was a difficult journey for me on many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, first and foremost, I just happened to be in Nigeria. I happened to get the tip that they were going home, and I felt compelled to take them, to go with them, to see the, the story through to what felt like an end, at least at this stage. Right. Um, and... It was a tough journey, and I talk about this in the book, because I was in Nigeria at that point because my mom was in hospital. As you know, my mom has been ill. How is your mom, by the way? She's she's doing okay. Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. And uh, she happened to be in Nigeria for for care Mm -hmm. when I got the— in fact, she was in a coma at the point when I got the tip. Mm -hmm. And once more, it was a real conversation with myself. This tip had come my way. I want— Part of wanting to take them home was also wanting once more to just flesh out the story for the world of who these girls are. Mm -hmm. And I felt it would have been an opportunity lost not to make the journey home for them. But my mom was in hospital. She was in a coma. I was going to be making a journey that was going through areas that Boko Haram was still attacking in a military convoy by road for about five to six hours. Mm And there was a lot of questioning of myself. Am I doing this for ego, for glory? For what, why, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Why are you leaving your responsibilities? Which, you know, I was the only person there with my mom. But again, as I, tell, as I explain in my, in my book and tell people who my mother is, I felt she would want me to take them. She would have said, move <laughs> heaven and earth and go. And um, I did. That's great. Wow, there's so much more to the stories you, you guys. And you have to get this book. It's so fascinating. It's, Thank you. I don't want to diminish it, but some of it, it feels like a movie, a lot of it too, you know. I mean, yeah, um, I mean, there's a, there is I mean, violence. You know, there's Unfortunately, this is, I mean, I'm in Hollywood. Yeah, so my I mean, brain we are doing this, com- having this conversation. Storytelling, you know. And but it's so real. It's and a dramatic and, story. Yeah. I mean, there, there are people who face, there's a challenge. There's, mm-hmm. there is. And you know what's interesting is how real life 
is always real life, mm-hmm. you know, even in these situations. Uh, one of the most interesting parts is when you follow one of the girls who escaped and mm-hmm. how she escaped. And she's, you know, she's out on the road and she tries to get a ride and she has a little bit of money. She has to bargain with the <laughs> person. She's escaping from Michael I know. Well, I, I don't know. It's going to be $4 <laughs> if I'm going to give you a ride. It's then, like, what are you doing? Seriously. But it's like people are still like they're operating under like these systems, even in these situations. It's fascinating it to is. me. Yeah. It is. Well, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's again, back to... Um, I guess you would say back to poverty, right? You mm. can't, you don't have the luxury yeah. of being right. Um, You're scared from Boko Haram, but guess what? It's going to cost you. Yeah, to and this, I, yeah. Need to pay, I need to pay, feed my children, and right. I need, you know, I got needs. Yeah, I've yeah. got needs, and um, I don't know if you saw, if you're watching the weekly, the New York Times show on. No, you know, I haven't seen it. Yeah. They just done a piece on Nigerian. The Nigerian prince, the Nigerian mm-hmm. scam artists who are sure. now stealing U.S. servicemen's identities to basically fleece American women. And mm-hmm. they're sending them money. And they make the trip to Nigeria and they speak to these men and they say, why are you doing it? Don't you feel remorse? Don't you feel bad about doing this? Mm-hmm. And they're like, poverty. <laughs> like, we can't afford. <laughs> now, you could argue that's also just bad people. Yes, but I think so. But, you know, mm-hmm. they are making a, a point that in that level of hardship, their argument that they're pushed to do things that you otherwise wouldn't have to do. That's their mm-hmm. argument. Yes. And I'm sure if you ask that man who said, I want, you know, $4 to take you home, he would say, needs must. Yeah. So fascinating. Uh, one of the other things, uh, you have your own foundation, WE Can Lead. Women Everywhere Can Women Lead. Everywhere. Do you want to talk about, a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, um, you know, I... It sits side by side with my commitment to the Nigerian girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I truly believe that, you know, and I say this a lot, when I, um, at the beginning of my career, when I would travel around and people would meet me, I think it's pretty well known that I'm Sierra Leonean, have Sierra mm-hmm. Leonean parentage, but people would always look at me as if I'm some kind of outlier, mm-hmm. you know, like, wow, you're the one that got away, you're the one who <laughs> you did good. Um Good for you. Good for you. Mm. You must be wired differently. Was one of your parents white? Exactly. <laughs> you know, what was it Biden said about, you know, uh, poor kids being kids. as smart yes. as white. <laughs> you got to love Joe Biden for his gaps. <laughs> it's so hilarious. Oh, you kids yeah. are almost as good as white Time's kids. up. Yeah. Time's up. Oh, man. <laughs> as he said, I give, I seed the time in yeah. that debate. Um, so for me, beginning um, my organization was really about saying to people, I'm not an outlier. I'm not different. Mm-hmm. All it is is that I have I come from a home. I have the parents who gave me the exposure, mm-hmm. who gave me the opportunity, who who shaped me in a way to believe in myself. Um, and that is the same for every child, be them be they in Africa or India, in any part of the developing world, that what they are looking for and what they need are people to pour into them, to provide opportunity, to show them a path, to show them something different, to strip them of all the negativity that is poured into them and all the sense of they cannot as girls they must not mm-hmm. and if you do that god willing the world will be flooded with millions of aishas yeah and that's the goal and quite simply that's what i'm doing with my life uh-huh. to tell stories um to use my foundation to work directly with girls to empower them to reprogram them to see that there are no limits and to 
specifically in the case of my, my organization, to help them see that they can lead in whatever space they are. You know, I'm trying to lead in this space, mm-hmm. by telling, and whether that's political, whether it's in their homes, whether it's in the community, whether it's, you know, at a country level, whatever, but for them to know that they are leaders, they have agency. You know, yep. The same way these girls felt they had no agency that night mm-hmm. and had to stay put, I'm doing work to make sure girls never feel that way that they always know that their voice matters, their power is real, and that they can move through this world in the, along the path that they choose to. We have to help them see the path, help give them a path, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, I think you're doing an amazing job. <laughs> we would all be so lucky to have a thousand Aishas, but I feel lucky to have just the one Aww, Aisha here. Thank thanks, you. Thanks so much for spending time with us. And guys, please get this book. I know it's, it's you know... It wouldn't be the thing you might ordinarily think of, but once you do, you will be happy that you did. Uh, Beneath the Tamarind Tree, it's such an important story, not just for our times, but uh, just to understand just what's happening in the world. Yeah. You know, yeah, which I, is, uh, and it's told so well, too. Thank you. I just think that, you know, we, we do have a lot of focus on Trump and everything he's yeah, doing, exactly. and, and that there is, there is purpose, and we need to keep an eye on that, but we also have to understand that we're part of a global community as well. Aisha Sassay. Thanks, Aisha. Thank you. Thank you, Larry.